Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Runner's World Podcast. Each month we'll be bringing you the latest advice, news and interviews from across the running world. I'm Rick Pearson, the Runner's World section editor, and I'm here with Ben Hobson, the digital editor. So Ben... What have we got coming up this episode? This month's podcast is themed around the important topic of eating disorders in athletics. Uh, we have the Iron Lady herself, Chrissy Wellington, talking about her own struggles with eating disorders. Uh, marathoner Tom Fairbrother tells us more about his new initiative, Train Brave. Performance and eating disorder dietitian Rini McGregor talks about orthorexia. And RW's very own Jane McGuire opens up about her own experience of anorexia. Ben, what have we been up to in the past month? Big highlight would be New York, not running it, just to clarify immediately. Yeah. Didn't, but we were out there for um, a yearly Runner's World meet where okay. all the international editors go out and we chat about running. It's basically a big nerdy A big thing. geek off in big New York. Geek, yeah, massive. Yeah. Um, and we get like, we have a day and a half of industry chat and then a, a day and a half of shoe brands showing us all their new secret stuff. So that's like the nerds in us really get excited about that. Is, but, it, is it top secret or can you share any learnings? Uh... It's kind of secret. Some she, like some people have gotten brand new things coming out, which are. I mean, I had to sign NDAs, and I'm not legally like I'm not sure if I can. Fine, we'll leave it can, there. We're fine. I'm not even sure if I can mention brands without someone being like lawyers. <laughs> um, but more importantly than all of that was, um, I got to run around Central Park as the build-up for New York Marathon was taking place, and I I don't think you can ever get better than running when a big race is coming. Yeah, the excitement. It's, yeah. It was so good, and the weather was really good as well. So like normally November, and New York is tends to be a bit chilly, and that, right. but it, it was vest weather. Oh, great! Right. So I was like, yeah, it was, um, it was, that was great. Like the, they were building the finish line. You would run yeah, around, yeah, yeah. everyone, all the flags were up. So yeah, that was, I'd say a running highlight was just feeding off that. Ah, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it was good. That sounds great. Slightly less glamorous for me was the, um, the Great South Run, which is a very good race, 10 miles in yep. Portsmouth. Again, lovely weather. So it was kind of perfect running conditions. Like, um, often with the Great South Run, it's very windy. So yep. the last two miles along the seafront and they can essentially, you can be going well and then your race is over because you're getting hit by a gale force. Yep. Um, but none of that. Yeah, managed to run a PB, which was good. So, uh, How, Come on then. What time? 102.13, which is actually Sharp. quite a healthy PB for me. It is. Better than I thought I'd do. I'm st- I'm immediately disappointed that it's not under an hour. Well, me too. And I had a Morton gel, the kind favoured by yep. Kipchoge and co, and I forgot to use it. So I'm imagining that, you know, there's your two minutes and 13 seconds exactly I'm going with sub hour with the Morton so sure. next year I'll be back with my Morton to try and go sub one 
For more from Runners World, head to runnersworld.co.uk. So our first guest is a four-time World Ironman champion, a world record holder and the global lead for health and well-being at Parkrun. Yet she says her biggest battles have been with disordered eating. Chrissy Wellington, welcome to the Runners World podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to have the opportunity to speak. Well, as I alluded to in the intro, um, you're best known for your extraordinary achievements in Ironman triathlon. But underneath, I know you had a history of eating disorders. When did when did that begin? It really began aged about 16. I became aware that a close friend was bulimic and she confided in me and far from being revolved I was actually intrigued by it and I think at, at that stage I was being bombarded as, as many teenagers are with with images at that time in in, in in magazines now more in social media you know images of of the perfect female figure and, and I think I internalized those messages and wanted to try and achieve it and had up until then a fantastic relationship with food didn't really think about food pretty much ate what I wanted was an active child and really didn't have any problems with 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 body weight but I think it was this desire for, for control and this fear of being out of control and this fear of um, not conforming to a stereotypical image that drove mm. me towards those behaviours. And it it was really a combination of restricting my intake and also making myself sick. So it was around the age of, I'd say, 16, 17, continued into my first year um, at university, really. And so we, so your your relationship with food was kind of established before you began training so in your in what you thought image and those associations with being thin that was did that stem from your youth rather than training and triathlon and and those sorts of things absolutely I I mean I came to triathlon and sport relatively late and and the disordered eating practices preceded that as a as a child and uh, a teenager I I I did sport socially, so it wasn't something that I ever wanted to pursue to a um, to a higher higher level. And food was something I always enjoyed. I'd always been a good eater. My parents, you know, exposed me to a range of different foods, so I really didn't have a problem. And I I do I wouldn't say blame, but attribute the problems to the the images that I was exposed to through teenage magazines and that uh, and being a quite a controlling person, someone that's you know, I'm quite a perfectionist. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I I saw in that something to aspire to, mm. and you become increasingly aware of your attractiveness to the opposite sex and I think I thought that you know thin was beautiful thin was what was expected thin was you know what you know boys men wanted to to see and and to, to achieve that I needed to control my my food intake but really I managed I think to address some of these problems in the first year at university 
university mm. when I I was exposed again to a range of different foods and kind of just let go a little bit, mm. actually. And the same friend that um, was bulimic um, in, in my teenage years actually sent me an article as the impact, uh, highlighting the impacts of, of, of bulimia because she was aware that I was adopting some of these um, behaviours. And that, that shocked me. You know, the, the, the growth of hair on your arms or all over your body, the rotting of, of teeth, all of those things that, that, that we, we increasingly know are associated with, with, with bulimia and disordered eating. And I think that shocked me. I also had a boyfriend at that time, so I was a lot more comfortable in my body. My, my academic work was going very well. So I think I was just really happy and yeah. lost a little bit of what I school can, you know, the control. And then I went traveling around the world for two years and again, just ate and drank. Um, and I gained quite a lot of weight for me. Yeah. Um, while I was traveling. And then when I was in Asia, I decided I, I was going to become a vegetarian and I wanted to get a handle again on what I was eating after a kind of unhealthy year or year or so, you know. And it was again in Asia that I just started to, to control a little bit what I ate, reduce the portions um, and cut out some of what I called, you know, the bad foods. And then I came back to the UK and I was doing my MA in, in Manchester and that was when I was really gripped again by uh, disordered eating and this time anorexia rather than bulimia. And I, and I this obsession with calories and calorie counting just took control. And, and now I have a real issue with the emphasis on calories and calorie counting i think it you know just a throwback to, to the days where i think that that really was something that that kind of compounded my my problem so i i restricted my food intake and i also started running and that's really where i had my kind of first foray into into running i started taking it a lot more seriously i lost a lot of weight my parents were very very worried um, my brother especially gave me quite a lot of tough love, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And it was as I, I think two things um, enabled me to kind of progress along the path of recovery. I wouldn't say you're ever fully recovered, but definitely, you know, progress along that, that path. Firstly was the realization of how much my behaviors were impacting others, especially my family. And to hurt them is something that I would I'd never want to do. So that that was that was really concerning for me. And, and secondly, um, I started to realise that food was fuel and make that association between food and performance. So it, instead of it being the enemy and something that had to be controlled, well, I guess I controlled it in a different way. And I and I channeled my my eating towards something that was a lot more healthy. So I was eating a lot more. I was eating a lot more to fuel my performance. I became a lot more informed about sports and nutrition. And I I think those two things really really helped me address some of those those problems. And and then latterly I I found triathlon and became a professional professional triathlete and and since then I've had a much more positive relationship with 
food, yeah. although it's just not always easy. I mean, one of the, the words you, you've used there a bit is, is control. And I guess we know there's some worrying statistics around athletes and runners being more susceptible to eating disorders. Do you think that that at its heart is about trying to control things? Um, I think there are there are several factors. I would hazard a guess that the common denominator is that, that we are quite controlling. We like routine. We like structure. We like to plan. We like to be organized because without those traits, you wouldn't be a successful athlete. So I think a, a lot relates to control. I think there are athletes um, in certain sports that are more susceptible um, sports that have a a weight related um, uh, kind of uh, uh, I guess are weight related like, like so running or cycling or something. running running cycling um, to some extent triathlon rowing yeah. where there are weight categories I think that's the word I was trying to find, like weight categories you know that that kind yeah. of thing and where there's there's the aesthetic element so your dance you know ballet things things like that as as well are are going to um um i think athletes are going to be more susceptible you mentioned chrissy that when when you discovered triathlon and your relationship with food changed because you realized the kind of the benefits to a certain extent of healthy eating but do you think that perhaps in some ways you replaced control over eating with kind of control over training was it just putting the emphasis of obsession somewhere else absolutely um it it was a struggle especially when i retired yeah from professional sport and no longer was no longer training you know four five six hours a day yeah um and i i had to look at my diet because i you know, I don't like the kind of calorie in, calorie out equation, but I wasn't doing as much exercise. No, I just, <laughs> yeah. you know, couldn't, didn't need to eat as much as I, yeah. as I was, and, and that was difficult. It was difficult, and I saw my body changing, mm. um, and it needed to change. Um, you know, as an athlete, I was, I was very, my body was very functional. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. enabled me to serve a purpose. But was I holistically healthy? Probably not. Mm. And I think on, on retirement, I realised I needed to get my body holistically, holistically healthy. Yeah. And, I, and I think as as retired athletes, as athletes, we need to be honest about the you know the toll that that sometimes our sport does take on our body, mm-hmm. and the um, difficult choices that yeah. that, are, that are made, and and the implications that that has for um, for female and and, and male hormonal health, bone health, holistic, holistic health. But, yes, sorry, just going back to your question, I did replace um, that control over food with, you know, training. Yeah. And I had to um, be very cognizant of that when I I retired. And that's why I – unfortunately, I don't don't think I've ever fully recovered – but I do have strategies to be able to manage the thoughts yeah. and the compulsions. Yeah. So just at the most basic level, 
previously I had, you know, if there was a piece of cake, I just wouldn't eat it. Yeah. Just would not eat it. Now I'd eat it. I might still feel guilty, but I'll still eat it. Yeah, right. Um, you know, so I, I wouldn't say I've, I'm ever free of those thoughts, yeah. free of those compulsions, but I can manage them and I can control them to, yeah you yeah. know i mean i'll, I'll tell you the guilt's still there for me with a piece of cake and i have nothing to do with being a professional <laughs> <laughs> but i think also just as a, as a parent now yeah very very mindful of uh the the, the fact you're a role model to yours for, for us to, to, to our daughter and i would you know children are very very perceptive yeah and I would never want her to um, adopt, you know, the behaviours that, that I have and yeah. to, you know, yeah. for me to be a, a negative influence on her. But also no, no, neither do I want to be dishonest. I want to share with her when the time is right some of the challenges that I've experienced in the hope that, it, you know, it would mean that she doesn't go down that path. But I think as a parent... It's really, really, it's really, really important to take that look at yourself and make sure that your your behaviours are are healthy. What do you think are some of the misconceptions currently around food and its impact on performance? Because I mean, we often hear stuff like, "Is lighter faster?" Yeah, that I mean, that's a really common misconception, especially in in running, and and increasingly increasingly in triathlon, which is unfortunate because triathlon is is one sport rather than three separate sports so you need to be strong and robust and powerful across all three disciplines yeah and so especially for triathlon light is definitely not necessarily faster because i i know for myself if i lost too much weight yeah. my swim would suffer yeah um my bike power would go down so yes i might be able to run faster but if i'm getting to the run you know, 30 minutes back because my swim and bike have been appalling. Well, that's not, that's not going to help me in a race. So yeah. it's that, that, that delicate, you know, delicate balance. Um, and, if, you know, that you only have to look at triathlon start line to see that every, you know, every athlete, athlete is different. Mm. But, you know, also the case, um, you know, with female marathoners, body types are so different. Mm. And we've had some, you know, there are some very successful athletes. They're not necessarily stereotypically stick thin, yeah. mm. but the fact that they're strong and, and robust means that they can, you know, sustain a high level of performance, maybe a lot longer than someone that is is thinner and, and potentially a little bit more fragile. Frail. And again, yeah. looking at the longer term, what are the implications of of such a physique for? bone health for hormonal health yeah. reproductive health all all of those things so definitely we need to look critically at the the claim that you know light is fast i guess one other um issue that i'm particularly concerned about is the association between exercise and food so for example you know the message that you've eaten a donut, this means an hour of swimming, or you've done an hour of swimming, you've earned that cake. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just, it's not a, you know, a, a, a reward-based kind of equation. It, it shouldn't be about, about that. I guess I have this concern that 
exercise is equated only with calorie burning. Yeah. You know, people do exercise, they want to burn a certain amount of calories. And I don't think that's a sustainable motivator. No. I think we need to be inspired, you know, by a whole range of different things that encourage us to um, exercise with maybe changing our body type being one, if that is something that you want to do or has been recommended by a healthcare professional. But I don't think that should be the sole and principal motivator. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I think the way that people possibly get into the idea of exercise is, is needs to change. I think that there's that step counting to burn certain you know like hitting that is a great way of doing it but then it equates to sort of burning a certain amount and it's whereas no one says like oh you should learn to run and go running because you might feel very happy afterwards yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that would be a really yeah. that would be nice yeah, like, like, you know, yeah. That's, so i guess one of the biggest things that's happened to recreational exercise in the 21st century would be parkrun and i know obviously you're involved with parkrun as well do you feel like in some ways that has changed the image of what it means to exercise and be a runner because at Parkrun, everyone's welcome? I think more broadly it's changed the conception of what being active is. Um, and we're so incredibly proud of the fact that the finish times at Parkrun are getting slower because it's indicative to us that we're engaging those that probably have the most gain from yeah. um, what Parkrun offers. But you know, being active to us is, Running, jogging, walking, volunteering, come along and spectate, go and throw, you know, stones in a pond or feed the duck. Just be outside with your friends. Yeah. Move your body in whatever way you want to in the open air. And there's incredible value in that. And I think Parkrun is helping to to highlight that. Mm. And, and also see success as an, an achievement as a very, very individual thing. So for some people, success is a 15-minute 10K, and for others, it's a... Sorry, 5K. And, and for others, it's a 50-minute or more 5K, and we celebrate both of those achievements as, you know, equally impressive. Um, we also celebrate volunteering and, and reward volunteering. So I really like that... It's, it's almost a leveller. It doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what your position or what you're placing or what your time. Everyone is doing 5K. Yeah. And everyone's achievement in that is, is celebrated. So yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoy working for Part Run. And I think, you know, our, our work has only just started in terms of really trying to engage yeah. some of the less active members of, of, of society who like i said have probably most to to gain from this kind of community social intervention that we offer um so what about now chrissy How, how's your running let's talk about running how is it <laughs> <laughs> um, it's um i'm trying to be the best i can in the context of my life now yeah. um to be honest so it was it was quite challenging after i retired just to kind of uh, reduce the volume um, yeah. and just associate myself with the um, identity of, of simply being a triathlete and move away from the kind of structure and routine. And and initially I found it quite difficult to set new goals for physical activity because I just felt that people were going to be looking at me and judging me and saying, oh, she's not the athlete she used to be. Yeah. And... 
And I think there's been enough water under the bridge, especially after we had our our daughter, that I feel ready to to set new goals, but also to, to see success as something different than simply a time yeah. or a pace or a position. So I might not be aspiring anymore to be world champion or to break world records yeah. or to, to win races, but I can still achieve and I can still be successful in my own right. Yeah. So last year I, I did the London Marathon. It was my 40th birthday treat to myself. Yeah. And I was really proud to go 2.49 and for yeah. my husband and daughter to be to be watching that. And then having said I'd never do an ultramarathon, I did an ultramarathon <laughs> and was surprised actually way. by how much, yeah. how much I enjoyed it. So I, I really, really enjoyed um, my first couple of ultras. Yeah. And I've got Valencia Marathon coming up in uh, three, yeah. less than three yeah. weeks. Nice, yeah. And then I have bitten the bullet and entered Comrade. Oh, wow. wow. There we go. Yeah. So that's the that's a big goal for next year, and I'm so, sure there'll be smaller stepping stones. But for me, running is something that's, um, more, I guess, easier. It's easier yeah. to do um, in, you know, in terms of fitting it around my life. And whereas previously... Sport was the main focus. Yeah. Now, it, it can't be. It's an important part of my life, but all of my decisions can't be based on my desire yeah. to achieve a certain time at, at Valencia and then at Comrade. So, um, I, I have to to see my performance in in, in that kind of yeah. context. But yeah, no, excited about Valencia and uh, then Valencia? having a bit of time off over yeah. Christmas. <laughs> Someone's done Valencia. I know there's a few people training for it at the minute, yeah. yeah. But um, it's mostly great. It's mostly yeah, quick really... and almost guaranteed good marathon weather. So, yeah. You now you've jinxed me. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> with the wettest, oh, yeah, worst Valencia. Yeah. Um, well, Christy, thank you very, very much for uh, for coming on the Runners World uh, podcast. We really, really appreciate you um, coming on and talking about um, eating disorders and athletics because we think it's a, a subject that needs to be talked about more and it sounds like there are people who are making uh, the right moves in this area but thanks again for coming on Pleasure's all mine, thank you thanks. Cheers For more from Runner's World head to runnersworld.co.uk We discussed this a little bit off mic but one of the reasons I think that eating disorders are prevalent in running is because of beliefs such as lighter equals faster and let's be frank, in some cases that can be true but it doesn't tell the full story, of course, and it can be dangerous if it's misinterpreted. Um, it's much better, I think, for runners to think about being strong, lean and healthy. I remember two marathons I did, both London, actually. One I finished in, like, 3.14 or something, didn't lift weights at all, and was probably three or four kilograms lighter than the next year when I had done, like, a, a weight-lifting routine. Mm. And actually, we're around 3.02, so there was a big, big uh, improvement being heavier but I just the, the weight that I put on was useful muscle weight I remember years ago quite a few years ago I met I was having a chat with Ron Hill name drop <laughs> and uh, and Ron we were talking about marathons and, and I said oh, it's not really for me I'm a bit too big because I'm my you know yeah what I, I believed and he was like nonsense he said and he, he was talking about and I forget the name of the runner but he's a guy that he ran with in his prime who was as big as me right. so like 6'2 and like 80 kilos so yeah. he's like you know not traditional size sort of like I'm a bit more than 80 I've mm. just been generous to myself <laughs> but he was saying you know that and, that and that was quite interesting to hear from like yeah. I think that 
perhaps the modern image is it, the modern image has distorted what I consider to be the right size and yeah, shape. Yeah. Whereas you talk to someone like the experience that is Ron Hill, and he'll be like, "That's nonsense." Yeah. Anyone who can be a size and can run a good man. Yeah. You know, so. Well, that's pretty. Yeah, from someone as renowned as Ron Hill. That's, yeah. That's pretty telling. Encourages. Isn't it? Yeah. Pretty telling. Yeah. Um, as well as running, Ben, you've you know you're a keen cyclist because mm. it's easy to think of this stuff as just a problem afflicting running, but it's not, is it? I mean, this kind of obsession with lightness. Is no, I, I've, if you talk in comparison to cycling, running's pretty running's pretty healthy in terms of image. Yeah. Um, uh, this was actually brought to my attention on Twitter the other day. I'd never really considered it. Um, someone that I follow called Grace, she tweeted about the the image of male men in in cycling and and particularly like brands and adverts and and the general thing and actually it's not a relatable unless you are a a, a master of the mountains like that's that's the main image is like a A kind of chris Froome. yeah it's your lean yeah lean climber like that's a lot of mostly major brands imagery within features yeah all of it is like is that and um yeah, so I think running comparatively to cycling, like mm. the, the what's put out there in terms of the shape and size of runners, is yeah. way better off. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's but, good to hear. That's I mean, because yeah, cycling, I don't, I don't, I don't. I mean, I read a lot of it, and I've never really thought about it. But yeah, on reflection, like mm. it's never, it's never. There's never this one body shape, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to know what listeners think about that. Do you think that? Uh, Running's getting the right messages out there when it comes to uh, exercise and weight loss. Let us know. Podcast at runnersworld.co.uk. This is the Runners World Podcast. We're joined now by 259 marathon. No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> We're joined now by 234 marathon runner and co-founder of Train Brave, a campaign to raise awareness about eating disorders in athletics. Uh, Tom, welcome to the Runners World Podcast. Thanks for having me. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about your background and your experience of eating disorders? Yeah, so I guess my story is a bit unusual for most people. So I, um, obviously eating disorders are more common amongst uh, women than men, particularly Mm. younger women. Whereas I was kind of in my mid-twenties, I just kind of started taking running a bit more seriously. Um, So I headed out to, you know, to Kenya to train, having kind of um, enjoyed kind of a Sort of astronomic rise from kind of a Sunday morning footballer to a to a marathon runner. Yeah. Um, so sort of very competitive, you know, kind of riding this wave of, you know, performance after performance and PBs and um, headed out there to train just as part of my gap year before starting um, uni. Right. Um, so kind of amongst like, you know, it was a very high performance environment, kind yeah. of lots of elite athletes and kind of Olympians and that kind of thing. God. Um, Zero to 100. Like really, quickly. yeah, yeah. I'm that kind of person, sort of. I'm kind of like an all or nothing, yeah, right. personality. Um, but it was more that just the opportunity arose that you know I had this period of time and I'd managed to save um, some money, so it just was too good opportunity to um, to turn down, really. Um, but it was <laughs> the whole experience was pretty much a disaster. <laughs> right. um, you know, I headed out on my, there on my own, so kind yeah. of um, very, very kind of isolated. Um, and I'd just done my first marathon bef- a couple of months beforehand, so still yeah. was kind of not really running, had a few niggles and that kind of thing. Mm. So I broke down within probably the first two or three days, my uh, just with a calf problem. Um, so there I am kind of in this elite Kenyan yeah. Yeah. altitude training running camp. Unable kind to of, run. Yeah, so it's like, you know, runners when they're injured are 
terrible oh, the country. Worst. Yeah. The worst at the best of times. But when you're in a yeah. this remote location where you're only there to run, mm. you know, it was really, really tough. Um, so I think that's probably one of the contributing factors because I was obviously very low, quite vulnerable, kind of missing home comforts and friends. And I just got chatting to a guy. Um, he was an Australian guy. I think he was like a master's athlete and a coach. Um, we just got chatting about, uh, he, well, he asked me kind of what I weighed. Mm. Um, so we just got chatting about it. And he said, well, you know, if you if you want to improve your marathon time, you could do with losing, you know, X amount. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of a throwaway remark. I don't think he meant anything kind of. Yeah, no, just said in the, in the context of just like. Yeah, it's just one of those. Performance-based weight exactly. losses equates to. Far, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. like, oh, you weigh this, if you weighed that, you'd be even yeah. faster, which was the sort of comment I'd probably just. Yeah, you know, well, it gets said quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, for most people, you you know, who are able just to brush it off. And, yeah. Um, but I think because I was there and wasn't able to train mm. and was obviously probably in quite a vulnerable yeah. state, it kind of just festered away. And for the next two or three weeks, you know, I thought, well, if I can't train, at mm. least I can, you know, cut down on what I'm eating, or maybe, mm. you know, just rest- maybe I won't have lunch today, or mm. and it just started these really un healthy sort of habits and behaviours which you know spiralled really really quickly um I came back from Kenya probably a month later because I just was you know I was unable to train I tried to start running again a couple of times and just thought I need to to go home um but I was by that point I was just obsessed with my weight you know I'd weigh myself several times a day wow I was cutting more and more my intake down yeah and um that just spiralled and spiralled rather than kind of um, I'll come home, you know, with my friends and family and a few more home comforts. If anything, it probably got worse because I came back feeling like I was a bit of a fraud because I'd made this big thing about the fact I was going out to Kenya, you yeah. know, just a guy from Suffolk who, you know, yeah, it was not something that people really did. Yeah, sure. Um, no, for sure. So to have come back so quickly, kind of not able to run, it was quite... Uh, I felt a bit humiliated by the whole experience. Yeah. Um, did like did when you came back? I mean, <clears throat> if you've not been running, but you've obviously spent three weeks sh- restricting your diet dramatically, were you lot were you lighter when you came? Did people yeah, notice? So I, I, and... I was um, so I was cross training while I was out there. Mm. So obviously, it's very kind of high altitude. So training wise, I did do quite a lot of training, mm. aerobic training. You know, I was aqua jogging or on the cross trainer right. a couple of times a day. So my fitness had improved whilst I was away. But that coupled with just the fact that I was massively kind of depriving myself of any, you know, towards the end I was just eating nothing at all. Oh. My weight had dropped quite a lot within those four weeks I was out there. Yeah. And that just became, you know, the buzz, you know, the buzz I would have got from running PBs or races, whatever. Yeah. I was getting that buzz from you know, weighing myself each morning and seeing that I'd lost some weight, which looking back now is a terrible yeah. thing. But once you're amongst it, and it was just all I really had to focus on. I think. That, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know, but this is, this is speculation, but I would assume that a lot of people fall into that. That's how it yeah. becomes the obsessive. Like, the goal, the goal exactly. hitting. Is yeah. Like, I think certain you... personalities, especially, yeah. it's, especially, you know, if you can be quite, people who are quite competitive and... Yeah. Sort of perfectionist, that kind of drive to kind of get that buzz from achieving something, yeah. which I would normally have got from, 
you know, yeah. healthier pursuits. But actually, it was just by this point, I got I was back running, you know, quite big mileage. But it still, it still kind of continued and just got really, 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 really unsustainable. And yeah. looking back, really how, dangerous. How bad did it get to me at, at your worst? I mean, what were you, what were you doing, and how were you feeling? Um, so yeah, I guess my my daily routine, I guess, is probably one way. I would get up, um, run for probably, I used to, you know, a minimum probably of an hour, mm. come back, maybe have a shake, but maybe not. Um, often I'd have the shake, feel bad that I'd have the shake, yeah. and throw the shake back up. Yeah. Um, mm. Go to work, eat nothing all day, come home. Uh, sort of pretend to have or have have a really really healthy dinner because I was living at home with my family right um then probably sneak upstairs and throw that up or and then often after I'd done that go back out for another run then come home go to bed and that it sounds horrendous but that was generally my routine for you know so my everything was affected by it because socially I just didn't really see my friends because I just was I guess I did what I tried to avoid any situation that would have broken that routine. So yeah. Yeah. going out for dinner or going out for drinks or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that that aspect was there. My sleep was really affected because obviously you get really really bad stomach kind of hunger pains. You know, in the middle of the night you mm. wake up and your stomach's just in. You're just in agony. You don't sleep very well, and then then mm. you wake up and you've not really slept and you're really irritable. Then you're just, you know, it's really, really hard to focus at work because you're just, you know, almost nodding off at your desk yeah. because you're just, you know, you're absolutely starving, you're exhausted. Yeah. Wow. But it's oh, just caught well. in this cycle of... And this is all secret. Yeah. You were keep, this is so... Yeah. And I think that's what... it was. Looking back, it was really easy to hide it, which I think is a real mm. problem. And it's quite scary because, because none of my friends or family are runners, yeah. I think... Clearly, my weight was plummeting really quickly. You know, I'd lost a lot of weight. My, my appearance had changed quite drastically. Um, but because I was running quite high mileage, yeah. you know, people were just like, oh, you know, you're really dedicated to yeah. training. Yeah, you can justify it, can't yeah. you? Like, oh, obviously I'm losing weight because I'm doing all this running. Yeah, so it was kind of like, I'm in this cycle, I've got to run because if I suddenly stopped running and kept losing weight, people would start to ask questions. So... Mm. Yeah. Felt like I had to run to justify the weight loss, but obviously that was, running was the last thing I should have been doing at that time because yeah. I was so kind of unwell. Um, just, and the, the fact I could hide it was just yeah. Yeah, um, just with the, I guess you went over to Kenya and you had this kind of performance mindset, and then it was about yeah. losing weight to be initially with the the promise of being a faster runner. What was the reality when you lost all that weight? What was your? Did it actually improve your running, or did it have the opposite effect? No, because I I was already at a healthy weight. Yeah, you know, right. I wasn't like yeah. I was carrying a little bit of timber or whatever. You know, yeah, I yeah. was, you know, I, I'd been running and played sport my whole life, and mm. you know, I was, you know, looking back at photos of me, you wouldn't have said I was no. someone who would obviously benefit from losing weight. I was, yeah, you know, um, so all, very quickly what happened? I just got injury after injury mm. because. You know, I wasn't recovering after runs yeah. with the right nutrition. I was overtraining. You know, I would not take a rest day. You know, to me, I, getting up and going for a run meant I was in minus 
calories for the day, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and if I d- then didn't run, that would have been a real issue. Yeah. So I would constantly yeah. get niggles from overtraining. Yeah. And I was obviously I'd lost so much muscle mass. I was yeah. just really, really weak, you know. So my performances, it was it just dropped off simply because I just the quality of my training was so poor yeah. because it was yeah. just all junk. Yeah. And I'd get to you know evening races and I've not had anything to eat all day mm. you know and you're just ready for bed and you're trying to then run a 10k or something and wow yeah so this it's this kind of um assumption that you know okay I weigh this much and I can run this fast yeah, yeah. if I lose this I'll yeah, run right. yeah that time it's just clearly there's a point where if someone is you know obese or you know severely overweight yeah clearly that someone like that would would benefit, benefit from losing, from losing weight, weight. Yeah. but then there definitely becomes like a a point where mm. it then you cross this threshold where it then becomes detrimental mm. and i think th- there with the awareness of the fact that it's not just this linear relationship of you know constant weight loss doesn't equal constantly getting faster because yeah. there, there yeah. is a point for everyone where suddenly you're underweight you know underfueled mm. and it is detrimental and i think yeah definitely crossing that line it's think it's really easy to cross that line mm. and i think it's really important that people are aware that there is a point where you know it is not just going to keep well how did you find that succeeding? line what was the what was the, the point for you when you just i mean was it performance based or was it family stepping in how did you sort of recover from this, this sort yeah, of spiral um i think looking back i probably knew all along mm. that my behavior was i don't think there was any any point where i thought this is this okay. is me. This is great. Well, this is yeah. normal. Yeah. I think all along I was probably aware that this wasn't a great idea, mm. but it becomes, you know, pretty quickly. It's not you're not really in control of it at all. Mm. You know, it's it's like all consuming. Yeah. I don't think at any point, you know, it wasn't a case of I know this is unhealthy and I'll just stop it when I can. It's like once you, it's kind of got once an eating disorder's kind of got hold of you. It's it's pretty much all consuming and you can't, you know, you're not. Mm. It's twenty four seven. It's not just at meal times and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so probably the the point for me was when I went to the dentist. So I'd had a lot of mm. toothache. Um, this was kind of almost coming up to two years since I'd been to Kenya at this point. Yeah. Um, and I just went to the dentist with lots of pain in my front teeth. Yeah. Um, and he just you know was just did the appointment. He was like you know you're gonna need this done and that done mm. and. You know, he said, oh, you know, go and book the appointment and whatever, just as your standard appointment. But then as I was leaving, he said, oh, can I? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Just have a quick word with yeah. you. So then the dental nurse went out. And it was just me and the dentist, and he was like, "Look, you're. Is there anything you want to tell me?" Yeah. And I was kind of like, "What does he mean?" Um, he was like, "Look, you're mid twenties, you, but you've lost seventy five percent of your front teeth. You know, and I hadn't even wasn't even aware of this. I think because it happened, mm, yeah. so you don't suddenly lose that much yeah. tooth." Um, he was like, "You know, there's two causes to this. It's either kind of acid reflux, you know, like heartburn, essentially, which yeah. is generally in elderly people." Yeah, he said, "Or it's you know." from excess vomiting, yeah. you know, and the acid in your stomach. And he's like, you're 25 years old. He said, I'm almost certain it's not yeah. reflux. Yeah. He said, I'm looking at you, you're, you told me you run a lot, you know, you're very slim. Mm. He's like, oh, are you making yourself sick? And it was like the first time anyone had ever... Actively yeah. confronted yeah. you about it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I'd had kind of comments, you know, throwaway comments in the pub from people yeah, yeah. about my weight and you're like looking yeah. like I was ill and that kind of stuff. But no one had directly said, you know, are you making yourself sick? And it was kind of, it was so, he presented it so objectively. Right. It couldn't really, yeah, yeah. there was no way you could argue yeah. or mm. deny And the facts it. are completely, like he's a dentist. He's yeah, seen, he's, he's, like, he's a dentist. You've lost this much tooth. Yeah, yeah. There's two causes. Yeah. It can only be this one. And it was quite, it was quite a massive load off my shoulders, really. I yeah. mean, I think I'd wanted to tell someone for a while, mm. but was just scared, you know, and my self-worth was kind of, you know, rock bottom that I would never ever probably have approached someone because I would have assumed the state I was in that they would have just laughed at me yeah. or yeah. disowned me or whatever, which obviously is not true. But yeah, but that's at the time, felt. yeah, it's almost like but you're not sleeping. I mean, you, you said you're like you're not yeah. sleeping. You're irrational. You're like exactly. everything. Your body's not functioning in a sort. Of... So you almost use that as yeah. a way to stay to keep up the behaviour by saying, yeah. oh, well, you can't stop because people will laugh at you. Mm. Well, um, I, think, I think that's a good time for us to talk about Train Brave because I, I know one of the, the kind of key things of Train Brave is you want to make it easier for people to talk about eating disorders and athletics yeah. and also to sort of train coaches around being able to have those com- difficult conversations with, with athletes. Yeah. Could you just tell us a little bit about the Train Brave mission and, and, and why you wanted to set it up? Yeah, I guess I've felt for a while there's been, you know... A few athletes over the past um, sort of two or three years who have come out and spoken about their issues with food or yeah. their, you know, overtraining or, um, you know, energy deficiency. and But it's always been kind of individual athletes coming out of their own backs to mm. write blogs. And there's always this huge outpouring. And then it kind of dies down until the next person does it. Yeah. And it feels like the onus is already always on individual athletes um to do that which it, it feels like that's a big thing for people to do you yeah know, it's a huge step mm, yeah. for people to come out so publicly and kind of vocally so the the idea was to try and kind of join everyone up a little bit so that it's not just individual people coming out and it not feeling like a huge deal to do that yeah um to try and kind of join everyone together to show more people that you know there's no shame in this you know you're not the only person yeah so hopefully try and encourage more people to no, not necessarily speak out because not everyone would want ever want to do that and we wouldn't mm, pressure no. it, but to actually 
more for people who are currently suffering to do something about it yeah, yeah. and not feel like they're going to get laughed at or ridiculed or yeah um so but just a support network essentially. yeah so, so that's one one aspect of it and the other aspect i guess is if we're then going to encourage more people to speak out and seek out there needs to be a bet there needs to be support for people yeah um so whether that's you know coaches feeling more comfortable you know speaking to athletes if they see something which they've got concerns about or or better links between coaches and clubs mm. and you know professional support or um clubs creating an environment mm. whereby you know the emphasis isn't all on you know appearance or um you know the way you look or weight or times and that kind of thing just yeah. so it's because clearly you know um the majority of clubs and coaches are really supportive mm. but there are obviously some instances where you hear of athletes saying they were pressured to lose weight or you know maybe not directly but you know just comments regarding their appearance yeah. or their size and yeah. just trying to just make people aware that you know the majority of runners are already at a very healthy yeah. weight compared to the rest of the population For sure so the you know losing weight is not should not be the first you know if you want to get faster that should be almost like a last resort yeah. and if and if so done professionally and you know yeah. sustainably yeah. and over time yeah. um so that's kind of the campaign really we just want everyone to be more aware and hopefully people feel more comfortable mm. you know having the difficult conversations yeah really. yeah absolutely do you get a sense that this is more commonplace than even you realized yeah i mean i don't you know i don't want to make throwaway remarks but i would say this is massively prevalent just i would say even you know i wrote a blog a couple of years ago which um for the guardian which is kind of how i shared my yeah. story publicly and you know i reckon i've had at least 100 people come say that they are currently suffering or have suffered yeah. from grassroots you know someone who's just done their first half marathon or 10k yeah up to like olympic medalists have said you know throughout my career this happened i felt mm. pressurized by the governing bodies or coaches to um to look or you know weigh a certain amount which yeah. and it's not just running either i feel like across all sports uh cycling especially for sure for sure i feel like yeah. that's just this huge issue kind of under the surface which is waiting yeah um and actually running is probably running is probably ahead of certain other sports in terms of the support it offers mm. um so i feel like there's still this especially at kind of an elite level this culture of you know mm. everyone knows it goes on but it's just part and parcel yeah, yeah. no one wants to be the one to rock the boat especially yeah. where you've got people's funding in you know their livelihoods on the line for sure no one wants to jeopardize that so yeah i feel like it's kind of waiting to all come to the surface really yeah definitely um can you tell us a bit about the event that's happening in december yeah so the event uh is on sunday the 9th of december in london um so we're going to have um a few talks from um three or four people who have suffered with either um energy relative energy deficiency or eating disorders at different levels about their own experiences um but also we'll have uh talks from uh Rini mcgregor great from a nutritional and psychological point of view and then nikki kia will also be talking about some of the physiological 
consequences and the hormonal issues and so hopefully we're trying to cover off all aspects where you know you're getting the personal stories um some of the causes you know some tips people can take away just so that the event is kind of we don't want it to feel like it's just you know uh, a workshop for coaches or yeah yeah. you know just a, a talk from a runner it's we're trying to cover off all angles really so um, anyone can come along just learn more whether they they feel like their own relationship with food is not particularly healthy or whether yeah. it's a coach who wants to broaden their understanding or clubs want to better support their coaches yeah. the majority of whom are obviously volunteers with other jobs and things so um the idea was just to kind of get everyone in a room yeah and then hopefully the takeaway from it is that we'll because we don't just want it to be kind of a one-off event we kind of want to almost be pushing and lobbying for more resources to be created yeah well we don't know what those are yet whether that's kind of handbooks for runners or courses for coaches to go mm. on or you know whatever that is so that a bigger takeaway from the event will be things that we can go away in action and try and um yeah encourage whether that's governing bodies or clubs or whatever to that sounds i mean it's a, yeah it sounds great it yeah. sounds like such an important sort of educational like yeah thing that i think as you say the the, the the scratching the surface of what could possibly be quite a large issue yeah it's kind of nice i think it's key that people have an opportunity to be informed slightly more about it i mean even just look working on this like coming before talking to you guys and hearing some talking about it with other people yeah. and sort of not really understanding the volume of like how yeah things, and then talking to Rini about orthorexia and how that's sort of like the rise of that and those this is it yeah if it just feels like there's more and more pressure on people in general but obviously athletes as well mm. you know to look a certain way or yeah to yeah. you know be a certain body shape and it feels, it feels like there's more and more pressure and so maybe with that awareness of these issues is rising but it still feels like that you know is are, are coaches seeing some things and they just yeah are they just scared to say anything because they just think i don't want to make this worse yeah like, it's just so easy to think i i don't know what to say so i'll just say yeah. nothing and that can if anything be more dangerous than saying yeah, kind definitely. of the wrong thing definitely absolutely Tom, oh, yeah, go on. Sorry. I was, I was going to say thanks very much. Well, please do. I was going to say thank you very much, Tom, for That's joining right. us. That was really, thanks really interesting me. and, uh, yeah, very enlightening. Yeah, I'm going to come along to the event on uh, Sunday night. Really looking forward to it. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for being on the no podcast. Problem. Thanks, and if thanks. anyone wants to find out anything about Train Brave, where should they go? Yeah, so we're on Twitter and Instagram, but probably the best place is uh, just trainbrave.org. Great. Great. Thanks again, Tom. That's okay. Thanks, Cheers. guys. Cheers. For more from Runners World, head to runnersworld.co.uk. We've been joined by Jane, the deputy digital editor from Runners World, who has her own experience of uh, eating disorders and running. So thanks for joining us, Jane. No problem. And uh, talking about this, because I guess it's not really an easy subject. No, I think it takes a while, and I think that's one thing. Like, it took me years to be cool with talking about it. And I think it's kind of not a pressure, but, you know some people can't talk about it and that's cool too but um i think the more people talk about it the less it becomes not a, like a big deal or you know less mean? of a stigma yeah less yeah. of a kind of oh my gosh you've had that and it becomes who you are uh, yeah. in a way so can you tell us then what like what your experience was yeah, with it in sort of, yeah. so i um well, i would probably have been about 
16, 17, and it's kind of very classic. I think every every teenager going through that time struggles with their body image a bit, and I just went too far, and it got very unhealthy very quickly. Mm. Um, and luckily, I was still under the NHS as a child, so my parents were able to... I think if you go into the eating disorder kind of system of an adult, you yeah, yeah. have... You're treated in a very not well. I, I can't. They haven't had experience as an adult, but because I was a child, I, my, you know, I knew that once I got very unwell, I wanted to um, educate myself. Because I think when you get to a certain point, the kind of treatment is we need to get weight on quickly okay. because you're very, you know, your body can't survive as it is. Yeah. But my parents were able to kind of, you know, I had a brilliant dietitian. I was very lucky. Um, I went to a great place in Dagenham and they let me um, kind of educate my body how to eat again. Because okay. I knew for me that drinking a really, you know, drinking 700 calories in a drink was one, terrifying, and two, it didn't really teach me about food and about how... Mm eating well was um but yeah I was very I was very underweight and it was a real it was kind of everyone thinks it's kind of you know you get an eating disorder because you're obsessed about food but it's not it's kind of not just about that it's about everything Mm. and it's about kind of control but also kind of I don't know I think yeah people think oh you're just obsessed with restricting food but it's kind of actually food is your entire life and it's kind of you you quickly learn these tricky kind of habits and I wouldn't ever talk about them because I didn't want to trigger anything for anyone else. Yeah. But, you know, you you learn these little tricks and these little things and it just becomes, like Tom said, it becomes your, you have this real structure to your life and anything that changes that structure is terrifying. So this is your way of way to keep it secret. And that, is, that yeah. what, is that what you well, were trying to do? I, I kept it secret, but obviously I was... I was kind of quite young and I was living at home and my mum my both my parents realized very early on what was going on yeah and I went to my GP and I think this is a real problem again this isn't about running but it's a real problem in um and it's been brought up in parliament recently I think that when you go to your GPs GPs are wonderful but they're not trained in eating disorders you go to a GP and they'll weigh you and they'll look at your BMI and they'll say no you're okay you're in the right kind of, like of zone, yeah. and in a way that was fuel to my fire someone saying no no you're not thin enough to be anorexic that yeah. I was then like great okay like oh. that's it I'll prove you wrong <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that was probably the you know that GP wouldn't have it was just the language used was completely completely wrong and I think you don't have to be dr- dramatically underweight to have an anorexic mindset no. you mm-hmm. don't you, if you have an unhealthy relationship with food yeah the the number on the scales doesn't matter it's what's going on in your head it's the same with alcohol right i don't think yeah. alcohol is defined by volume of drinks a week it's it's reasons for drinking ability not to drink yeah which is i think it's that isn't it it's the kind of it's the, the effect it has over you and your and your um lack of power to do anything about yeah. it yeah but because of that i then it was probably about a year later that i actually you know, got the help I needed. And mm. by that point, I'd lost a lot, a lot of weight in a year. Like, that's a yeah, long that's time it. to be living with this. And I, you know, I I dropped out of school. I couldn't, I wasn't well enough to go to school. I wasn't well enough to do my A-levels. Um, so it was kind of, that had got really bad yeah. in that time. And it wasn't that GP's fault, but it was, if I'd got the help I needed 
a year before. And I do think you have, for me, everyone has a different experience, but for me, you have this kind of moment of realisation. For me, it was, you're not, you can't go to university. You're not well enough. Your body isn't strong enough to cope mm. with the pressures of moving out of your home, of, you know, meeting new people, you know, everything that fresh yeah. as week, you're not well enough. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be left behind. I need to, you know, I'm not going to... I'm going to be living at home with my parents, you know, mm. which is fine. And I, I think I should have had a, I should have had a gap year to get better, but I knew I didn't want to. Mm. And in a way, going, I went to Loughborough, which is really healthy, and kind of health was so important. Their team there were great, and it was the best thing to do because I was surrounded by other yeah. twenty, well, well, how old are you? Like nineteen-year-olds who didn't care, who would, you know eat what they wanted and I was like oh actually you know I'll never be that relaxed but maybe this shouldn't rule my life Um, and that it was a healthy place to be in you know sport wise I wasn't well enough to run I wasn't I I couldn't run I had a really good um, I was in a really good care with you know experts kind of and they were like you're you're not your your body isn't strong yeah you can't run and you know, but I knew that for me, doing exercise helped me accept that food was like fuel mm. and food wasn't scary. Mm. So I used to swim because I think when you're in the water, no one can see your body. No one could see what I looked like. Yeah. And you can't listen to music. You can't look at your phone. And it was just I'd just swim. And then once you kind of build muscle, you can run. And then it kind of helped me. You know, I don't think I have the perfect diet, but it helped me relax about food and not care. I think as long as you're not restricting. I think mm. that's the word I yeah. use. If you're saying, no, I'm not going to eat that because I haven't done this, mm. that's worrying. Yeah. Um, and that shouldn't be how it is. But, yeah, I think yeah. you've done like a monologue. No, no that's, that's, no, I think that's it's really interesting to get that insight. Um, one of the things you said there is I've heard Tom say the same thing about this this kind of myth or this misconception about having to earn food, mm. through something that you earn through um, exercise. Especially in running. Yeah. Like the, everyone yeah. equates it's all about and it, I mean the food the food and fuel thing is 100% like from a very basic biological mm. element yeah that's how it works yeah but I think that's kind of like the growth that sort of changed mm. from into a, like a real earn system yeah exactly which yeah. I think is unhealthy right like <clears throat> you, sh- you shouldn't have to feel like you you are earning food because food's I don't think it should be looked at in that, as that kind of a reward for yeah. exercise, you know, it's like a essential part well, of life. Because then you get that trade-off is if you haven't done it, you don't eat it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You After you're swimming and getting strong again and, and then the running came mm. back in. Were you running before? Um, a little bit. Like, my, I've grown up in a family of runners, so I'd always, you know, I, I, I don't think, looking back at pictures of me, I don't think I was ever, I was never overweight. I'm quite small, yeah. so I, I wasn't overweight. But I think it was... I in my head it's that body dysmorphia I thought I was overweight yeah so I'd run a bit then but I would you know I never properly ran I kind of sprint off at a million miles an hour and then walk for a bit you know I wasn't like a runner Mm. um but then after the swimming I kind of discovered running and then um yeah it just kind of carried on from there I think running was quite good for me in that I you can see improvements and I could see as I ate better yeah I could run not faster but better like not you know run for longer and it became kind of a thing where you know it's easy to not easy but with running you can see an improvement quicker with swimming you can't really because you don't 
I didn't have a watch. I didn't. You know, I didn't. Yeah, I yeah. just go for a. It's swim. hard to measure, isn't it? Yeah, hard to measure. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of then turned. Now I, I, I don't really. But I think it, it helped with running. It really helped because you can tell if you haven't eaten properly, it's really hard. Yeah. And it kind of helped me think. Oh, actually, you know, carbs weren't scary anymore. And I definitely had when I was ill. I had foods that were safe and foods that weren't. And anything, you know, I think. Un, unlike other eating disorders with mine, it was very much healthy food, everything. It was vegetables. That was all I'd eat. Right. And it was kind of similar to the newer eating disorders that have just been diagnosed where everything has to be healthy. Yeah, the orthorexia Yeah, stuff. it was yeah. like that and that everything had to be healthy. I wouldn't eat cheese, I wouldn't eat chocolate, I wouldn't eat anything that was kind of, mm. had any fat in. Mm. And, you know, with, with exercising more, I realised that actually those foods are okay. And I think... I remember having conversations with, you know, experts who were kind of like, mm, I don't know if if exercise is good. I think, you know, you should get to a certain weight before. Mm. But I just knew that I I think you don't ever fully recover from an eating disorder. I think it's something you manage and you live with. Right. And you have good days and you have bad days and you have periods where it doesn't. But then you have, you know, something happens in your life and it fl- it's your coping. It's how you cope with something. Mm. And I think for me, if I didn't, I mean, I know that when I'm injured and I can't run, I get a bit kind of, yeah. and it's that kind of, I think that's, again, something that you have to manage because you shouldn't, running shouldn't be something that you do. You have to do. You have to do yeah. to eat better. Yeah. It should, they should come hand in hand, but it did really help me and I can completely see how it can go the other way yeah. and you can become obsessed with running and being lighter. Mm. But for me, it's definitely a way to to relax about you know to think oh i can eat that or i can have this for dinner or mm. you know i can you know it doesn't matter yeah and yeah, it's yeah. kind of helped me just just calm down about yeah, it i guess because right. yeah, yeah. it was it was just i think you have that really obsessive personality and it helped me just kind of chill out about it it's interesting you say that but you never really get over an eating disorder or you get over it but it's kind of with you for life it's the mm. same way that people talk about other addictions it's the same thing you know i think it's i think it's always there i don't you know, I luckily I have the people around me that know, so mm. I know. But it, I know myself that I can fall into little habits, and I think, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't yeah, do that yeah. today, and oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't eat that today, and that's really dangerous. And straight away, I'll kind of, you know, get on the phone to my mum and be like, oh, I'm, and she'll be kind of like, no, come on. And it's you've yeah. got those people. Mm. I had a brilliant counsellor who's like a, a friend, and she's always there. I can drop her a text, and yeah. I don't need it right now, but I know that sometimes when things happen that's my way of coping yeah. to kind of then look at what I'm eating and what I'm running and yeah. and that's not right and but I think once you've gone through it and got over it once you're kind of you know how to deal you know with it, it and you're yeah. and that's what I, I guess I'd encourage anyone that was really struggling to get that it's kind of like a team like get that team who know mm. how what works for you mm. and for me it's telling people because once you've told people that I'm oh I'm struggling with this a bit they're kind of like, okay, like, what should we do to help? And it's yeah. not in your head anymore. It's not your problem. Yeah. It's everyone's helping you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's what works for me. But for other people, that might not work. But I think definitely talking about yeah. it and, you know, GPs just having the right language would really help. And as I said, if I'd seen the right people a lot earlier, yeah. Yeah. it would never have got that bad. And I'd have never, you know, missed those years of school. Missed those years of my life, I guess. Those yeah. kind of 
all my friends going on those end of school holidays, I couldn't go. It wasn't well, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have missed all that. But I don't regret it because I think it w- I think it would have yeah. happened at some point in my life anyway. I think yeah. I've got that personality. For more from Runners World, head to runnersworld.co.uk. So I came across a few eating disorder stats uh, based on a report by um, which was commissioned by Beat, and uh, so here's four of them. I think are probably the most telling. So. More than 725,000 people in the UK are affected by an eating disorder. About 1 in 250 women and 1 in 2,000 men will suffer from anorexia at some point, and it usually develops at around 16 or 17 years of age. Bulimia is around two to three times more common than anorexia, and about 90% of people with bulimia are female. And uh, global studies have shown that uh, there is a 20% higher prevalence among athletes of all ages and abilities to develop a dysfunctional relationship with food. The final one about this, the twenty percent mm. prevalence among athletes. I mean, that we're, we're going to talk to Rini a bit more about orthorexia. Yeah, but I think that that's that's something that I think eating disorders. Everyone kind of assumes anorexia and bulimia yeah. are kind of like yeah, yeah. your two things, but the orthorexia is very much um, one of increasing concern. Yeah, within a you know performance sport and, yeah. and general life. I yeah, think. definitely. We, yeah. Should, we should just qualify that orthorexia is essentially the kind of unhealthy obsession with healthy food and it's one that i think if you know i've been really lucky mate i've never had like an eating disorder certainly not one i could um diagnose as such but i do understand the orthorexia one more because i think there have been periods in my life where being very i would have called it very very disciplined with eating but the idea of yeah saying no to desserts almost out of principle which i think actually was about control and it was about kind of slight obsession with being a better runner i do understand how um runners of a certain mindset can can get into that yeah i mean as a tipping point yeah. for sure i have i've done particularly strict diet things before i took part in a in a sort of body transformation type thing which was where i, I tracked all my macros to this it. is like the men's health yeah yeah thing. so i did yeah. it and, and i i first of all i want to say i really enjoyed it yeah um i it hasn't had any knock-on effect i eat lots yeah um but it was super interesting to 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 measure my intake yeah. For, for 12 weeks yeah um and I, I can see you um i think that the most interesting part of it is you can very much see how easily you could slip into the yeah. habit yeah because you see results yes i think that's one of the main things you suddenly see mm. i was much stronger i had all the muscly bits yeah it was it was kind of as it was meant to happen and you know it, you sort of realize that by training hard and, and by eating certain amounts of food yeah. you get a you get a result and i think that that, that is or the main focus of a lot of people mm. and i think that that's where an issue comes and that's in. kind of aesthetic fitness, yeah isn't that's it? aesthetic yeah yeah for sure yeah part of our hope is that, that people um email us and let us know you know their own perspectives and opinions on it because like you say it's a complicated subject i think it's all about getting people uh, talking more so yeah that's a uh, podcast at runnersworld.co.uk this is the runners world podcast healthy eating is a good thing we all know that but is it possible to have too much of a good thing Rini mcgregor's book orthorexia discusses the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating she's joining us on the phone now to tell us more uh hi Rini, how are you I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yep, good. Thank you very much. Um, so most people are familiar with terms such as anorexia and bulimia, but orthorexia is were less well known. What exactly is it? Um, 
So orthorexia is a fairly new term in ter- with regards to eating disorders. Not actually yet a diagnosable condition. So with anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, there is a you find them in the the, the, the DSM, um, which is the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Health. But orthorexia yet hasn't been um, defined like that. However, we are as practitioners seeing more and more um, a case. Uh, more and more people with this and, and basically it's an obsession with eating purely it's an obsession with eating cleanly so the whole kind of hashtag clean eating um campaign if you want to call it trend whatever you want to call it that came through a few years ago and kind of bombarded our our social media i guess that had a lot to do with it it's it's not i never say that social media or even trends and campaigns cause a problem but it has definitely started um this obsession with eating particularly should we say yeah i mean i guess one of the questions that it might invite is you know how can it be unhealthy to eat healthy food um so yeah absolutely i mean i would definitely say it's good to eat healthy being a registered dietitian and and i would definitely advocate that myself but it's when it becomes obsessive so it's a point where it starts to take over your life so where food starts to create anxiety or to the point where you can't deviate. So, you know, like most of us will be fairly mindful of what we eat. We'll, you know, try and have more fruit and veg. We'll probably try and cut back on the sugar. But then, you know, a friend might ring up and say, do you fancy going out for a glass of wine and a pizza? And yeah. we'll be fine with that. We can do that. We don't have any issues. It doesn't cause us anxiety. It doesn't, it doesn't make us come up with excuses. Where it becomes obsessive, the healthy eating is when you can't, you just can't deviate from your food rules. Right, You've right. created these really, really strict parameters in which you, you work within. And beyond that, it just causes you too much anxiety. Um, and so obviously that's not helpful for you from a health point of view, but even also from a mental health point of view, because you know the more rigid you become in the way you think about food and training, the more isolated you become. And obviously we do know from various, psychological models that the more isolated somebody becomes the more withdrawn they become the more delusional they can become in terms of they start to get more and more intrusive thoughts which helps them which makes them think that they're not worthy they're not good enough people don't like them and it kind of is that self-perpetuating cycle of, of just not feeling particularly good in yourself you mentioned the the, the sort of the way that training and, and eating sort of go hand in hand have you have you sort of seen any trends where people who train and particularly runners are, are particularly susceptible to, to orthorexia? Oh, hugely, hugely. Um, I, I would say probably about 70%, maybe even 80% of the people I see in clinic now are individuals who've got a very disordered and dysfunctional relationship with food and training. I think, you know, we, as runners, as triathletes, as cyclists, you know, whatever sport you do, when you take it to a level, and even at a recreational level, when you take it to a competitive level and you're fairly disciplined with your with your training, you are probably of a certain nature. Right? Like you, you are somebody you are somebody who is probably very determined and very mm. focused and um and so you it's very easy to see how one extreme behaviour can 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 kind of go into another extreme behaviour. So you know, I think something like orthorexia or, or eating disorders in general, 
they are not about food and body image. They are that's just a symptom that's being used. So right. what, what's really going on is, is this real discomfort, this real anxiety, um, this unacceptance of who you are at a fundamental kind of deep-rooted level. And, and it's that that feels very, very uncomfortable. Like it doesn't feel nice to be you. Um, that's the only way I can describe it, really. It's yeah. really hard to explain what I mean, but it's just you just feel really uncomfortable in yourself. But the problem is you're not really interpreting that discomfort as anxiety or or not working out that it's about how you perceive yourself. It's, it, 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 because of, I suppose, the way in which we experience it and the way in which society kind of gives us these ideals of what we should be like, we start to deflect that onto things like exercise, food, body image, because it's, you know, it, it's easy to think, oh, somebody's happy, somebody's, somebody's, you know, got a great life because they look great, because they're mm. smiling in their Instagram photo, and, yeah. and you know, it's really easy to to kind of assume that that's real. Um, and I suppose the thing with orthorexia is people usually develop orthorexia, or even to a degree anorexia. It's kind of like you're going in search of a way of trying to improve this feeling mm. it's not about improving yourself but it's like you're looking for something you're looking for that answer that kind of golden nugget that's going to make you feel complete i mean you mentioned it before with um like you know the kind of hashtag clean eating and um instagram and facebook and how maybe they're not helping with the, these mm. kind of conditions what role do you think social media has played in the rise of orthorexia so i have to say a really big role i mean there was a study that came out last year from ucl and there's been subsequent studies that are coming out at the moment um that have shown that individuals that are on Instagram have a 49% um, increased prevalence of developing orthorexia compared with those that are not on Instagram or social media, where it's less than 1%. Okay, wow. So yeah. that's, a big, that's a big statistic to yeah. kind of work with. Um, and equally, there's a new study that's coming out. It'll probably be out early next year, but I've just read the... Um, I've just been asked to review it yeah. from, a, from a professional point of view. Um, and it's basically showing the link between um, people that do sport, particularly things like running um, and triathlon, and um, the risk of orthorexia. And there's a much higher risk, almost like a 40% higher risk of individuals who are within sport to develop orthorexia. So there's a big link. And I think um, with the like whole sort of social media the issue is that you have so many people giving out their own opinions about what you should and shouldn't do yeah. and should and shouldn't wear and how you should be. And and I think when you are somebody who's quite vulnerable, you know, when you're not feeling great in yourself, I mean, I'm sure you and I can both probably remember a, an evening or a, or a time in the day at some point where you haven't felt particularly confident and you've gone on social media and you're almost your worst when you come off. Yeah. Somebody else needs to be achieving and you're like, well... Yeah, I'm not doing very much with my time. And, and and I think that's it. You've got to remember, that's how you feel occasionally mm, yeah. when you've got somebody who's very vulnerable, who's constantly beating themselves up, who's constantly self-critical and can't see what good they really are. They're constantly up, upwardly comparing themselves to all these images on, on social media. And, and it's really hard for them to actually work out what's reality. Is it is it easy for someone if you were concerned about a friend or, or someone? How is it? Is, are there telltale signs that you can use to spot someone who is suffering from orthorexia so that you can try and help? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing would be, you know, if they're constantly refusing to um, eat out with you or even eat at your house, you know, they can't cope with you preparing something. Or they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll come on, but I'll bring my own stuff because I'm on this special diet or, or whatever, you know, they'll, or they'll, make, they'll create an excuse. Um, orthorexia is not always associated with obsessive exercising, but it's definitely... Um, associated with an obsessive need to be healthy. So you often see health trends, definitely. So you might find that they get a little bit agitated if they can't, you know, say, for example, you have agreed to go out for brunch, but the place you're going to go to where they've obviously feel comfortable going is shut for whatever reason. They'll probably get very agitated about the fact that that's shut and they can't, um, they can't go there. And then they may even call the whole thing off. You know, it's, it's that kind of extreme... Um, they may also be fairly evangelistic about what they're doing. So we're seeing a big rise, and, and, and I'm going to be careful about how I put this, but we are seeing a big rise of people becoming vegan. And veganism is a very, very easy way of um, disguising orthorexia because you're immediately removing food groups. So... I'm not anti-veganism. I think you can you can have a really good, well-balanced diet being a vegan, and I have nothing against it at all. I think it's, that it can be a good way of doing things. However, when you become vegan, and then on top of that, you become sugar-free, and you don't have, um, you know, you're interested on having kind of almond rather than soya milk, and we know that soya milk's got a lot more nutrition than almond milk, yeah. um, where you may even become... It's going to become gluten-free as well as vegan. And, it, and do you see what I mean? Like it becomes more and more restrictive. Then I think you've got a problem. I think then you've got to start asking questions. You know, are you doing this for the right reasons? You can, it, this is the, like I said, the thing about veganism, it gives you a disguise, gives you a perfect disguise to hide away from orthorexia because you legitimately can go, well, I'm vegan, so I can't do that, you know. Do you, do you think really there's enough information and support out there for runners who are suffering from this stuff? Because I know that you're starting the the Train Brave initiative to kind of help out yeah. in this world. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Like I'm obviously I'm very fortunate because I do work in high performance sport, and as with everything, you know those very that very few percentage of people that are in high performance elite level sport, they generally get um, help more. Than, than the general public. And so one of the reasons that Tom and I came together and to develop Train Brave is we wanted to make something accessible for everybody. Um, I think even in the high performance world, it's been slow to kind of like picking up on the fact that this is a problem. However, REDS is a really big buzzword now. And the REDS is relative energy deficiency in sport. It's the kind of term we use in sport. Right. And it's a big buzzword. We're seeing it commonly in, in athletes um, at a high level and I've just been I've just written some guidelines and we've got a new resource called um, um, in fact I'm just going to look it up because I've forgotten which is not great is it um, it's called Health for Performance it's a new website coming out um, which I've written with a, a number of other so we're on an advisory board a number of other academics and clinicians um, for BASIS the kind of British Association of Sports Medicine yeah. so We've got that as a resource coming out, and um, which we hope will really help coaches and athletes. And then, like I said, Train Brave is something that Tom and I have collaborated on. And I see this on a daily basis. I mean, I can't, I literally, not a single day goes past without me getting a new referral 
of somebody struggling with their relationship with food, training, um, and um, and, it, and, it, and it's affecting and impacting not just their mental health, but their physical health as well. So to answer your question, I don't think there has been enough, but I feel like there is definitely a movement. And I'm, I'm really hoping that um, we're going to create a really safe space for people. Because I think sometimes it can be difficult when it's just a website or when it's when it's like a um a workshop or you know like i know like with again within uk sport that they've got coaches development workshops and they're that they're kind of giving athletes access to um mental health practitioners and, and all that kind of thing but again that's that's the top end we have this kind of second tier of athletes who are all running within different clubs across the whole of the uk and within that a high percentage are struggling yeah. with dysfunctional relationships with food and so those are the individuals that Tom and I are, are hoping to target and, and offer a offer some guidance and advice about what to look out for what impact it can have you know the consequences both from a personal perspective but also what I see as a, as a clinician in this this area mm. but then also we want to really create a safe space we want to ask them what they want yeah also we hope this will start people looking for help as well yeah, well, I think it's absolutely great what you and Tom are doing. And really, thanks very, very much for um, making time to speak with us uh, for the Runners World podcast. And uh, yeah, we'll include a link to the events and the various support that, that people can get if they've got a problem with um, with training and food. So thanks very much. No worries. That's great. Thank you for, your, for letting, us, uh, letting us have a chat with you guys. No, not at all. Pleasure. Cheers, really. Thanks a lot. For more from Runners World, head to runnersworld.co.uk. So that brings us to the end of this month's Runners World podcast. I want to say a big thank you to our guests, Chrissy Wellington, Tom Fairbrother, Rini McGregor and Jane McGuire, and to Scramble Studios in Soho where this is recorded. For more from Runners World, why not visit our website, runnersworld.co.uk, where you'll find more news, reviews and interviews from the wide world of running. Uh, if you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. And thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next month. See ya. The Runner's World podcast was recorded at Scramble Studios Soho. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water... 
it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. 